0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The
2: Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books Podcast with me, Claire Armistead. Me, Shan Kane.
1: And me, Richard Lee.
2: This week, Zara Krasnerstein's The Trauma Cleaner takes us into the world of those responsible for clearing up the detritus of tragedy and chaos as experienced through the eyes and the begloved hands of an extraordinary woman called Sandra Pankhurst.
3: The juxtaposition of these very, you know, dark images with this tall, glamorous woman who was smiling invitingly at, you know, the passersby and and tied to this uh, oxygen mask, what I later
2: learned was her lung condition... But wearing it like it was jewellery. But first, we wanted to devote a moment to the sad news last week about the death of Judith Carr, only begetter of the tiger who came to tea and Mog the forgetful cat, among many other colourful creatures.
1: Yeah, uh, it's, it's such sad news, isn't it? I mean, you know, it's such a marvellous person and such marvellous books. I mean, I remember reading The Tiger Who Came to Tea as a small person myself and indeed with small people at my knee
2: did your children like it because i have heard people who children who are really terrified by it <laughs>
1: i don't think they were terrified by it i mean it's a very strange story in a way isn't it with the the tiger drinking all the
2: huge great tiger yeah. sits down at this table with these tiny little children
1: yeah. and uh, drinks all the water from the taps and all daddy's beer uh, but it's all right in the end. They all go out for sausages and it's, it's, and it's fine. <laughs> uh, so um, they, they were never scared by it. I think they rather enjoyed it. But they were quite young at the time. I think they moved on to the the Mog stories, which are wonderful in a slightly different way.
2: Yeah, yeah. The Mog the forgetful cat who's always up to naughty, bad things. I was actually absolutely devoted to, to Judith. In fact, we had a bit of a double act going on. She, every time I did an event with her, she'd come up with some new story about one of her mugs. Uh, there were there were many cats, and they're all buried in her garden in in West London under their little crosses for all, not only cats but hamsters, all the all sort of whole family of all her family and other animals. And Mog was such a celebrity in 2002 when she finally killed her off that um, we ran an obituary for her in the <laughs> Guardian, and we unfortunately got her sex wrong. <laughs> and there was outcry, ah. absolute outcry. was yes. <laughs> so, so
1: marvellously ditzy. <laughs> Tina's <laughs> always got her into the most awful scrapes, where she had this moment of feeling so terribly small.
2: Yeah, but she was also very naughty. And uh, Judith was always used to talk about cats as people. She would say they're very bad people, cats. <laughs> <laughs> that would come another anecdote you hadn't heard. And she lived. Her latest cat was Katinka, who I've met many times. And Katinka's tail was her last cat tail. And as far as I know, she is survived by Katinka, which really should have been in her in Judith's real life obituary. But of course, um, we don't go in for those sort of playful things these days. She would have loved it. Yeah.
4: <laughs> do you know that story that she's told about the German translations of Mog, that they made Mog a boycat? And apparently she could do nothing to dissuade them because they weren't interested in having female characters in, in the books. So she... I don't know whether this was the inspiration for her to do this, but it's a very good move. She gave Mog kittens, and she said she left them to sort it out.
2: <laughs> you know, once, I grew up with a parrot. <laughs> we had a parrot which was called Friday, as in Man Friday came out of the jungle. And at thirteen, Man Friday laid an egg. Oh. so it's a similar sort of story. <laughs> these things, these things do happen. Anyway, but I mean, we should also remember about Judith that she was. One of the great refugees of the twentieth century, you know, she's the huge success story, and the fact that her death was announced on the day of the European elections mm. was sort of rang a very deep, clamorous bell in my heart, because she she escaped with her family at a day's notice because it, her father was tipped off that he was that the squads were coming for him. It was just before. Uh, Hitler was elected Chancellor and she wrote when Hitler stole Pink Rabbit about that experience of fleeing across Europe having been wealthy absolutely the centre heart of this thriving buzzy intelligentsia in Berlin had nothing didn't even have a language so her father was stripped of his language her mother they're very tender descriptions of her mother who always had maids having to learn how to knit and scramble eggs and she couldn't do it so mm. so she's both got the humor and the melancholy the deep deep melancholy of what they what confronted them and then in the second book it was it became a trilogy in the second book there's a story of them being um the hotel they were staying in a very down and out hotel in soho which was bombed with them in it and a wardrobe saved them and wow. they got out so you know it it was an extraordinarily embattled early life and and then they had enough money to send to her brother who became a a judge an eminent judge to send him to public school but they didn't have enough money to keep her in education but three kind ladies she always said clubbed together to to send her to boarding school Mm. and she left at 16 became a stenographer sold her first drawing for three shillings and sixpence to a man she met at a lion's tea shop (laughs) Awesome. And she would she was she did painting of murals and she did textiles. And then she had this fairy tale encounter with her husband, Nigel Neal, who's a science fiction writer, very, very well known television writer, in the BBC canteen where she wasn't working, but she used to go and get a cheap lunch and their eyes met across a crowded room and there began one of the great creative partnerships of the twentieth century as well. And eventually it was due to her whiling away hours with her first daughter Tacy that, um, and thinking wouldn't it be nice if someone came to call now anybody who's had toddlers knows what that feeling when it's sort of come, crawling up towards sort of 3 o'clock in the afternoon anything anything can anything happen but <laughs> not just nothing and along came the tiger and so so um, those are just some of my memories of the great Judith Carr and you know one I feel sad but I also think it was a life well led and she wasn't ill at all long in fact on the last Sunday she was in the Observer saying her guilty secret was she drinks the dregs of yesterday. Today's whiskey in the morning. (laughs) She came on the podcast a couple of times, and here she is reading from When Hitler Stole Pink Rabbit.
5: More opening and shutting of doors, this time more quickly. Voices saying, Customs, anything to declare? A different man came into the compartment. Mama and the lady both said they had nothing to declare, and he made a mark with chalk on all their luggage, even on the lady's basket. Another wait then a whistle, and at last they started again. This time the train gathered speed and went on chugging steadily through the countryside. After a long time, Anna asked, ''Are we in Switzerland yet?'' ''I think so. I'm not sure,'' said Mama. The lady with the basket stopped chewing. ''Oh, yes,'' she said comfortably, ''this is Switzerland.'' ''We're in Switzerland now. This is my country.'' It was marvellous. ''Switzerland,'' said Anna, ''we're really in Switzerland.'' ''About time, too,'' said Max and grinned. Mama put the camel bag down on the seat beside her and smiled and smiled. ''Well,'' she said, ''well, we'll soon be with Papa.'' Anna suddenly felt quite silly and light-headed, She wanted to do or say something extraordinary and exciting, but could think of nothing at all. So she turned to the Swiss lady and said, Excuse me, but what have you got in that basket? That's my mogger, said the lady in her soft country voice. For some reason, this was terribly funny. Anna, biting back her laughter, glanced at Marx and found that he too was almost in convulsions. What's a mogger, she asked, as the lady folded back the lid of the basket, and before anyone could answer, there was a screech of, Me! And the head of a scruffy black tomcat appeared out of the opening. At this, Anna and Max could contain themselves no longer. They fell about with laughter. He answered you, gasped Max. You said, What's a mogger? And he said, Me! screamed Anna. "'Children, children,' said Mama, but it was no good. "'They could not stop laughing. "'They laughed at everything they saw all the way to Zurich. "'Mama apologised to the lady, but she said she did not mind. "'She knew high spirits when she saw them. "'Anytime they looked like flagging, "'Max only had to say, What's a mogger?' "'And Anna cried, Me!' "'And they were off all over again. "'They were still laughing on the platform in Zurich.' When they were looking for Papa Anna saw him first He was standing by a bookstore His face was white And his eyes were searching the crowds milling round the train Papa! she shouted Papa! He turned and saw them And then Papa Who was always so dignified Who never did anything in a hurry Suddenly ran towards them he put his arms on Mamma and hugged her. Then he hugged Anna and Max. He hugged and hugged them all and would not let them go. I couldn't see you, said Papa. I was afraid. I know,
1: said Mamma. A lot can happen in three
2: years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at borough.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at borough.com slash ACAST.
2: So, now a chance encounter at a forensics conference led to Sarah Krasnerstein's first book, The Trauma Cleaner. She was attending the conference as a legal researcher when she happened upon a woman sitting at a table showing photos of her work. She was a trauma scene cleaner. Sean, this is a pretty arcane occupation. What does it actually mean?
4: Well, um, basically,
2: uh, it,
4: it's quite an interesting situation. and It's not the case for all countries, but it is the case for Australia, where, where this book is set that private companies or civilians can be hired by councils or government or police forces to come in when either a crime scene has been sort of finished with, so the police have finished their investigation, in the aftermath of a suicide, Or even just a case where uh, someone has been a hoarder and the council needs the house returned to as close to its original state as possibly can be, they hire people like Sandra to come in and tidy the house. So she's an amateur. Yes, exactly. And she's just a complete, she's a civilian. She doesn't have uh, any sort of particular training in cleaning even. But she was, it might be ruining the story a little bit because she has an absolutely phenomenal life story to say anything more but she found herself in this line of work. And the more that you learn about her as a person, because it turns out that her work really is the least interesting thing about this woman, the more you hear about her life and what she's gone through, this very strange job actually starts to make complete sense. You, you understand exactly why she is the perfect person to be doing it.
2: It doesn't sound exactly
4: like a sort of summary page turn. <laughs> <laughs> this is the thing that I'm i far more cheerful in summer and so I find myself turning to darker books because it's really the, the time of year that I'm drawn to them. So I tend to go to beaches and read really harrowing things. Uh, I, actually, you've
2: got to, you, I think that that's a really good point. I think people do go to more serious things partly because they have more time during, yes. during holiday seasons than, than at work.
4: And honestly, Say that this book is really genuinely uplifting in many ways it's very harrowing in many ways as well but it's one of those books that you finish and you're really glad that this person you don't know exists you're kind of glad that people like
2: Sandra are in the world. Well just to prove that it's not only you your weird ghoulish sense of um, literary <laughs> worth um, she was shortlisted for the Welcome Book Prize and was beaten by Will Eads with his novel Murmur about the life of Alan Turing. Was she robbed?
4: I I loved Murmur. I think it's a fantastic novel, but I really would have loved this to win just because I really feel it's one of those books I wish more people had read. And it's one of those books that I keep sort of forcing on friends and family because I think it's genuinely one of the best books I've ever read
2: me that's that's is praise, and I think yes. if you force it on me, you might no no longer be my friend. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's
2: coming when you least Do expect it. Do you need it. a strong stomach? <laughs> I'd say
4: you will know within about three pages whether you're going to cope with it. <laughs> um, but is she certainly uh, Sarah, in writing this book, she doesn't revel in any of the gore, but she's just trying to present the reality of it, and you kind of need that ugliness in there to sort of help you appreciate the small moments of beauty throughout the book. It's a really remarkable balancing act. So when I spoke with Sarah, I asked her to begin by reading the scene from her very first on-site experience with Sandra Pankhurst. And please bear in mind that she describes some upsetting scenes. I pull up in
3: front of a complex of endless Soviet-style apartments and walk over to the immaculate traveling hardware store that is the STC van, where I'm handed a white disposable jumpsuit. The package specifies the garment's application as follows. Asbestos removal, abattoirs, painting, forensics, insulation, laboratories, factories, food processing, waste control, medical, law enforcement, pesticide spraying. I'm also given a disposable respirator mask and a pair of blue rubber gloves. Four of Sandra's cleaners are there, Tanya, Cheryl, Lizzie, and Dylan, everyone reduced to a small cheery face sticking out of a white disposable hood. Dylan, tall and still baby-faced, hands me two flat white things that look like chef's hats but turn out to be shoe covers. I glance at the others to figure out how to put them on. With our hoods up and our blue gloves on, we stand there looking like something between Smurfs and astronauts. Except for Sandra. Sandra is wearing a slim slimline purple parka, ironed, with jeans and spotless white canvas sneakers. Sandra looks like she should be enjoying a PIMS after a walk along the beach. Instead, she leads us through the security gates into an elevator and up one floor to a flat where a young woman died of a heroin overdose and lay undiscovered for two and a half weeks in the summer heat. Sandra will collect the deceased's personal items for the family, appraise what needs to be done to rent the apartment again and supervise the cleaning. A man on the ground floor looks up and asks what we are doing. Just a maintenance doll, Sandra reassures him, which in its own way is the truth.
4: So we're talking about your book, The Trauma Cleaner, and it's one of these funny books because I feel like I read it like 18 months ago or something, and then it got nominated for the Welcome Prize this year. And as a book sort of from Australia, there's always a bit of a delay with these books coming over to the UK, but then it was such a wonderful thing to see it coming up for the Welcome Prize. Um, So it sort of had a bit of a second life. So while you're here, I wanted to have you on the show because I I love this book so much. Oh, that's lovely. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. And it's such a funny book, like at the prize ceremony for the welcome, it was sort of introduced as being a book about death, decay and disaster. But then with the caveat that actually it's a really hopeful and oftentimes like a book about kindness, it Mm. seems to me. It just seems like it's about so many things at the same time. But at the heart of it, it's got this woman called Sandra Pankhurst. Yes. Can you just sort of lay out Sandra for us and just sort of paint a picture how you met her and when you first realized that actually she was someone you wanted to write
2: about?
3: Yeah, so um, in my other life I'm a legal researcher and I was at a conference for forensic support services for disabled offenders and the kind of people that go to these things besides academics are criminal justice system stakeholders, so you know corrections, the police and Sandra was there in the lobby touting her business and said so we'd come out of a session and, you know, it was. I always bring up Diane Arbus here because she said, my favorite photographer, said that you don't choose the image, it chooses you. And when that happens, it feels like you've been gently clobbered. And so this image of Sandra just doing, you know, a very daily thing was profoundly arresting. She was at this card table with the brochures for her trauma cleaning business and this tiny TV with before and after scenes of her work. And what I was seeing there was, you know, houses literally filled to capacity with rubbish or, you know, blood stains, or, you know, dirt stains and human excrement and the before and after, after being immaculate like any kind of flat you might see if you're, you know, looking for somewhere near to live. And there, I guess the first thing was realizing I had no idea about an entire industry, not just, you know. The need to have it the social need for this work but also the people who do it and the second thing was the juxtaposition of these very you know dark images with this tall glamorous woman who was smiling invitingly at you know the passers-by and um you know making small talk very glamorous and and tied to this uh oxygen masks what i later learned was her lung condition But wearing it like it was jewelry, and it was just something I didn't put on my writer's hat consciously. It was just, you know, kind of something's tweaked inside where you just have to know more. And so I thought I might do a small profile, you know, a day in the life of a crime scene cleaner. But from that first sit down with her, it became very clear that her work was actually the least interesting thing about her. And the life that she had lived was its own remarkable story. So pretty much from that first interview, I knew... That there yeah. was much more there,
4: yeah. Because she's like the dream subject. She's had she's had such an amazing and in times extremely traumatic life, mm. but just so much life lived. Yes, it, there's no dull bits no, anywhere. Dull. No, and
3: and you know, and, and, you know, as I was doing all the the research and the writing, and people would say, "What are you working on?" And I'd explain, and often they'd miss that first bit of this is nonfiction, and it would be. Oh no, that character will never work. No one will believe that. And <laughs> hold on, that's
4: true. No, she exists. <laughs> and so you you went on quite a lot of these claims with her while you were sort of researching this book and writing it. What was that experience like for you? Because reading it at times is really upsetting. It's a, often really sad book.
3: Yeah, I mean th- that stuff was very confronting. Obviously, it was the first few times very confronting, but because you know this is her day-to-day work. This is where she, you know, takes uh, phone calls and sends messages and has snacks and has a coffee, and also the cleaning staff that that work for her. That had a wonderful normalizing effect. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, you know, she was a good Virgil. Like, you'd follow her into the darkest places, and <laughs> she's a good guide. But also kind of a very heavy sense that each of these cases was very unique. I mean, you know, there there were definitely patterns that hinted towards l- larger social problems and social issues. But each one was its own special combination of circumstances. And I knew if I had spent too much time freaking out and, you know, indulging in the emotion of it, I would miss the details that I was there to collect. So as a matter of respect for her time and for the client's time and, you know, the work itself, I would just have to focus. And over time, you just get used to it. And there was, you know, a highly normalizing impact. These places were in every neighborhood. They affected all kinds of professions, backgrounds, intellect. And so, you know, this this kind of sense that this is just uh, another day at work really
4: did start to filter through after a while. In the cases where it, there's no death. So I'm, yes. I'm thinking of the cases like there's there's a woman called Janice in this yes. book, where You go in and the team goes in and you sort of open up the house and start bringing the rubbish out. It's amazing. It's a sort of common thing that neighbours come past Mm. and they say, oh, well, we had no idea, even if they're neighbours for 30, 40 years. Or even uh, actually in the case of Janice, her own son hadn't been in her house for five years and hadn't realised that she was hoarding to the degree that she was. Did that ever surprise you, the fact that, that the people could have this much sort of chaos and mess in their lives and be able to hide it. You know, it's one of those
3: things that we don't think about, even though perhaps we should. But I think our society, we have so many kind of socialized silences. Um, We talk about very superficial things. We don't like to mix in. We mind our own business. And as you say, I would see again and again on these streets, you know, you would uh, live next to somebody sometimes for 30 years, Uh, You'd sleep, you know, 10 meters away from their bedroom and have no idea what lay inside that door. And I think in our fearfulness about, you know, intervening too much in someone else's circumstance, there might be, uh, you know, equal but opposite misfortune of, well, we let people suffer who are actually screaming, screaming for help. And so, you know, at least in Australian society, there was no real language for that type of uh, concern or community. And, yeah, it was profoundly
4: unsettling. I guess then with people like Sandra then, who seems to just have this amazing capacity for empathy. Mm. And I'll bring up her childhood later on um, because it is kind of amazing how empathetic she is given everything that's happened in her life. But were you constantly surprised? It seems like in the book that... you're, you're amazed by her capacity to remain calm and also kind, regardless of whether how frightening the situation it is, whether, uh, for example, there's there's one house where the house you're cleaning is a, a sex offender mm. and uh, Sandra has been raped. Yes. So it, it's sort of the situation where you may be, I went in, maybe expecting her to be a bit more standoffish and actually she's still kind and understanding but very much in charge the whole time. Yeah, that's exactly right. I
3: mean, she does have, and it was a, you know, my preference is always for a longitudinal observation process over a number of years, and I could see no matter who the person was from, like you say, the convicted sex offender to, you know, uh, there was one job that didn't make it in, but they were a little old couple, and they were, you know, together, they really had hoarded an entire house of rubbish. But from everyone in between, it was literally just another day at the office for her. So she would have this wonderful kind of equity in conversation. She'd be commenting on the weather, bitching about the traffic, and just getting the job done around it. And all of that would seem incidental. But I think, well, to a degree, it actually was, because this was her her norm. And so they didn't feel judged. They didn't feel, you know, ashamed. And so it it has the kind of the practical, pragmatic aspect of making it easier easier for her to do her work. But because she's lived so many lives, it's incredibly difficult, probably impossible to shock her. And so she would just be having these very human interactions and getting on with the work. And I think over time, and it seems kind of obvious, but I would be wondering, you know, I I leave the psychological literature as the very last step because I try my best to get a, a lived understanding of what I'm seeing. But when you look at something like hoarding, or you know the industry term, wet and dry squalor, all the things that you should throw out in the bin or flush down the toilet, when you look at these houses that are literally drowning in this stuff, well, what is it? It's it's the manifestation of just human pain and isolation. And so, I think connection ease the antidote in many circumstances. Obviously, that'd be simplistic to say that that's the solution all the time. But it went a lot of the ways to, you know, making them comfortable enough that she could make their lives easier for just a little while.
4: I think there is there is an actual incident where you observe that, or maybe it was Sandra that observes that one major factor in putting someone at ease is often these people are touch-starved because mm. they're so alone. And just putting her hand on their shoulder or something yeah. like that immediately just changes the dynamic, Yes, which is like an incredibly empathetic and insightful thing to to be able to just sort of pull out. Yes. It seems like nothing really gets past it.
3: And I think, you know, I don't think that was um, strategic. I think that, in a sense, it's almost intuitive because in terms of the susceptibility to shame, she's had so many of those events and traumas in her own life That perhaps it's a way of healing that in her, which has felt as they did now. And so it was very lovely to witness and I think kind of beneficial for all of us who to some degree have something like that.
4: Well, let's talk about Sandra's childhood just because it is astounding. I I I went into this book expecting just a whole book about cleaning basically (laughs) and then came out of it having read a very different book. But I think it'd be good to actually have you read just a small paragraph because it actually took my breath away, the cruelty um, that is shown in this one paragraph. And I read it to my partner last night, and he just looked absolutely like I'd hit him with a sledgehammer. So Mm -hmm. I think it it just sort of sums up the dynamic between Sandra's parents and Sandra. Yes. So uh, Sandra was assigned male at
3: birth in the uh, early 50s and adopted through the Catholic Church into a very emotionally and physically abusive home. She chooses to keep her birth name to herself, so in consultation with her, I chose Peter as the name for herself as a young boy. Sandra doesn't think of herself as having been a little girl. She, you know, will say that she just felt different, and so, you know, being led by her on the issue of pronouns and naming, Peter is is Sandra's child self, so... The second child and the oldest son, he was adopted after Bill and Elsa lost a son in childbirth and were told that they could have no more biological children. For about five years, it was just Peter and his older sister, Barbara. But then Elsa fell pregnant, first with Simon and two years later, Christopher. That's when they told Peter that he had been adopted as a replacement for the son they had lost and that they had made a mistake because they now had not just Simon, but also Christopher, you see. This was stated clinically as a matter of fact. Nothing bitter and twisted or anything. And a few years later, they moved Peter out of the room he shared with his brothers, with its bunk beds and black walls and bright red bedspreads, and into a low shed his father built in the
4: backyard. It's just astounding. (laughs) So going into that then, having seen Sandra at that conference, you wouldn't have known any of this was behind Sandra's story. No. You wouldn't have known anything about her childhood No. Um, or even that she was that she was transgender and no. When you started hearing her story, mm. what was it like? Oh, I mean, it was
3: it was distressing. You feel great sadness but also very privileged because, you know, there was a sense at that first interview that she had not shared all all of that information at once with someone who was still, for all intents and purposes, a stranger. And so I felt um, great responsibility towards that information. And at the same time, was already starting to see this beautiful parallel with the work that she did. And that you know, just deepened over time. So it was, it was very sad, but also you could see how that pain had been used for, for good. Mm. And in that sense, it was actually very beautiful.
4: And as you went through all of the conversations, like how many hours of interviews were you doing to get this life story out of her?
3: Well, you know, he, she was very candid in the first uh, that first sit-down. And that in itself is very interesting when a subject, you know, trusts you that much early on. And, of course, there were equal gaps in the information. So, you know, it was noteworthy how much she was sharing and also what more lay beneath the surface. My preference is not to do a formal Q&A style interview ever. My interviews with subjects often look like I haven't done my homework. It's more (laughs) conversational and circular. And I'm guided by them about what they think are the most important events in their life. And I think that's kind of the beginning and ending of a story. Because, of course, they would know those uh, the significance better than than someone else, so uh, the research, both you know the conversational research and the observational research was just under four years, mm. uh, and the writing was just under two years but of course it 's a constant process of going back and forth and adding and weaving
4: things in and, you know, your understanding deepens over time. And and how did you sort of contend with the realization that actually her memory is is kind of shot for a lot of her past?
3: So she was very honest about that in that first meeting as well, you know, that these sustained episodes of trauma and drug and alcohol usage, which is very much just self-medication, had had the effect of eroding large tracts of her memory. And, you know, of course, uh, my, my background is legal. I want to triple verify every fact. <laughs> and when you write about people that are not public figures, they live a feather light trace on a historical record. So you really have to look for other sources that so would track down people that had once been in her life, or I'd go to places and try to do the history of those places. And still, there would be often nothing to get from, you know, the chronological gaps just would, you know, not be able to be connected. So then when I stopped being frustrated about you know this lack of information and and more interested in what it means, what does it mean when you don't remember the year of your sex reassignment surgery? What does it mean to not know if you were at the birth of your first child or whether you had a wedding party? Then it started to get somewhere because that kind of absence of information is its own information and its own truth claim. And so it's not kind of a journalistic rendering in the sense that you, you know, might wish for as a completist, but it definitely has its its advantages in terms of a deeper emotional truth.
4: And so, how does how does Sandra feel about the book?
3: Oh, she I think she was very proud to have. People are often very proud to be seen, completely, especially if they have not had that in their personal relationships. I mean, she had moved through her whole life only ever being partially known because that was essential for her physical safety growing up as a trans woman in the 60s, 70s, 80s in Melbourne. I like to give subjects a read-through before the draft is finalized, and so she had that. And, you know, was very happy with, with the product, so that was always a re- that's always a relief. <laughs> but, you know, you try to speak frankly about the process. This is the good and the bad that does more justice to you as a person than, you know, a caricature. Everything that you are all of us are in the end. Mm. So while something looks very singular, there's actually elements there that
4: we all can relate to. I can't actually really describe the joy I felt when I finished the book and I googled to see what she was doing now and saw that she'd been on all the morning telly shows after your book came out. <laughs> really enjoying it. <laughs> Looking really it.
3: glamorous. Yes. And I think the lived experience of, you can be as brave as you know you want in the process, but the lived experience of you know, now people know that I had to do sex work, or now people know that, you know, I was assigned male at birth, and, and it changes none of your professional relationships, none of your personal relationships. I think that's something you only feel by going through the process. So, you know, I feel great satisfaction that that was the result
2: for her. Well, far be it from me to say so, Sean, but it does sound like inspiring stuff. <laughs> that was Sarah Krasnerstein, the trauma cleaners out from Text Publishing Company, and now As soon as we finish recording, the Guardian books team are swinging their red and white spotted handkerchiefs on their broomsticks over their shoulders, ready to head west to this year's Hay Festival. That's a Pookie the Flying Rabbit (laughs) reference.
4: I (laughs) hope you appreciate it, Sean.
2: (laughs) It promises to be another absolute cracker, and we're looking forward to bringing you the highlights in next week's episode.
1: So is there anyone you'd particularly like to hear from at the Hay Festival, or any questions you're burning to ask an author? do contact us on Twitter at Guardian Books or leave a comment on the podcast page and we'll see what we can do. And as ever, please do subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts.
2: But for now, from me, Claire Armistead, me, Sean Kane,
1: and me, Richard Lee,
2: and our producer, Susanna Trezillion, goodbye and thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.
0: I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Leah Alec-Murray.
3: And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect.